0: you to carry your mat on the Sabbath, and he said, well, the man who healed me told me to pick it up and walk. So they asked him who it was, and the man didn't know, but later when he found out that it was Jesus, he went and told them that it was Jesus. I hope, uh, I hope that he didn't do it in a mean, snitchy kind of way. I hope that he was just obeying his authorities, so he let them know that it was Jesus, And when they criticized him further, Jesus said, my father is always working up to this very day and I too am working. There are times when Jesus defended what he did on the Sabbath uh, by appealing to mercy. It was right for me to have mercy upon this person because after all, he is a son of Abraham, he's a child of Abraham and if you had a sheep or an oxen that fell an ox that fell into the ditch on the Sabbath, you'd pull him out. So it's right to do works of mercy on the Sabbath. That's the way Jesus often defended his uh, himself against the accusations brought against him by those who felt like he was breaking the Sabbath. That is not, however, the tack or the approach that Jesus takes here. Instead, Jesus says. I am doing the works that my father has told me to do. I'm doing them in the way that he does them. I'm doing them at the time that he prescribes that I should do them. We all know that God must work on the Sabbath day or the world would cease to cease to exist. And so, like God, I also am working on the Sabbath day. And uh, this incensed his antagonist's to a new height of antagonism. So they had been aggravated with him for breaking the Sabbath day, but now they had new and fresh reasons to be aggravated with him because he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. And so last week we saw from John chapter 5 how that Jesus... uh, strengthens their suspicion. They thought it was a suspicion of heresy. You're making yourself equal with God. But Jesus instead strengthened their suspicion to say, you are right when you say that I'm making myself equal with God, but it's not a heresy. It is the truth. And you are amazed that I have healed a man on the Sabbath you're going to see much greater things than this. You're going to see that I'm going to heal people who have completely stopped working physically. In other words, dead people. You will see that I will raise people who are completely dysfunctional spiritually. Spiritually dead people will be raised from the dead. And in fact, many of you, of the Pharisees, believe that there will be a resurrection of the dead. I am the one who is going to do that. I'm the one who's going to raise the dead at the last day. You're, you're angry with me for exercising jurisdiction over the Sabbath day, but God has granted me jurisdiction not only over one day of the week, but over all the days of the week. In fact, God has granted me jurisdiction over all the world. You believe that one day... Everyone is going to have to stand before God and be judged. I'm the one who's going to be doing that. And so you can just imagine how that uh, those who were already aggravated with him for a relatively minor offense became absolutely furious when he explained to them, now you're right in your suspicion. I am making myself equal with God. And I am doing and will do things that only God can do. Raise the dead and judge the world. Now, those are some pretty bold claims. And uh, one wonders, uh, do you have proof of this? Are you just spouting this off? If so, you're a madman. What evidence do you have for these audacious claims that you are making about yourself? And in the text for today, we will see uh, that he brings forward a very significant witness that will attest to the things and has attested and will continue to attest to the truthfulness of these assertions, these very audacious assertions that Jesus is making about himself. And um, this witness is God. And God will, will testify and is testifying during the life of Jesus by the works that he has enabled Jesus to perform. He attested to the truthfulness of Jesus' claims by speaking from heaven and saying, this is my beloved son. And he even appeared in the form of a dove. Then God the Father also attests to the trustworthiness of Jesus' claims through the Scriptures. And so Jesus calls forth God the Father as the primary witness to say these claims that Jesus is making, they are true, they are right, they reflect who he is and what I have assigned him to do. And so there are two possible Titles for this sermon, and one has to do with uh, distrust—that there is absolutely no just reason for not trusting in Jesus. And uh, but the other title takes a more positive approach and says, "Here is incontrovertible evidence that Jesus is who He claimed to be, and that He is worthy of our trust." He's worthy of our worship. I'll read the text as I just make my way through it. With that uh, review of what has passed and what we're going to expect today, let me observe that uh, many of the songs in our hymn book were written by people who were aspiring poets. Uh, I I don't think that hymn... Hymns are supposed to be great poetry, and they usually are not but uh, there there are occasionally great great flights of poetry in the hymns, uh, but for the most part, they are far more simple and far more easy to understand than what has generally been recognized as great classic poetry. Uh, so the hymns were deliberately composed to be uh, simple expressions of truth or simple expressions of worship, but many of them were written as as coherent expressions. That is to say, uh, maybe maybe the poet, maybe the hymn writer originally wrote seven stanzas, and uh, there are very few hymns in the hymn book that contain seven stanzas. The reason for that is that uh, people have got this idea that when we sing, we've got to hurry up and get it over with. And uh, I think that's a bad, I think that's a bad perspective. So some of us grew up in churches where we would sing only the first stanza of a song. And when you sing only the first stanza of a song that contains a message that is unfolded in seven stanzas, then you miss out on what the writer had to say. So, for example, if you sing only the first stanza of a mighty fortress is our God, then you end up with saying concerning Satan, on earth is not his equal. And then you stop right there because that's the way the first stanza ends. We have a great foe and on earth there's not his equal. But in the following stanzas, then it says... Did we in our own strength confide, confide our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. And it goes on to talk about how that we don't have to be afraid. We can let goods and kindred go in this mortal life also. They may kill us. The body they may kill. God's truth is living still. His kingdom is forever. So if you sing only the first stanza... Of a mighty fortress, then you end up glorifying Satan, and it was very common uh, where I grew up to say, "We're going to sing only the first, second, and third, first, second, and final stanzas, and uh, just leave out whatever stanzas three and four have to say." And and often it it messes with the meaning of the song. Now this morning we sang. Uh, what was the first song we sang, Jim Bob? All hail the power of Jesus' name. We sing only four stanzas. Because we sing only four stanzas and leave out a couple of others, I I promise you that half of you in here have never really understood that song. I'm not criticizing Jim Bob. This is the way it appears in most hymn books. Uh, But the, the other stanzas, so we say, All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Let's start with angels. Bring forth the royal diadem, you angels, and crown him Lord of all. And then in our second stanza it says, uh, all, uh, let's see, ye chosen seed of Israel's race. The original lyric is, a remnant weak and small. It's been changed to, "ye chosen seed of Israel's race, uh, rent ye ransomed from the fall. Some editor thought, well, that, that's kind of pejorative to say that there's only a few people saved from Israel. But that's the way it is. It is a remnant weak and small. So the second stanza is addressing people who were saved out of the nation of Israel. And then a stanza that we never sing is addressed to Gentiles. Ye Gentile sinners, ne'er forget the wormwood and the gall. Wormwood and gall are biblical phrases for the bitterness of ignorance and being distant from God. Come throw your trophies at his feet and crown him Lord of all. And then another stanza that we never sing is crown him ye martyrs of our God who, at his, who from his altar call extol the stem of Jesse's rod and crown him Lord of all. So angels, Israeli people, Gentile people, martyrs of our God, and then let every nation, every tongue on this terrestrial ball to him All majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all, every nation, every tribe. And then finally it ends up with saying, Oh, that with yonder sacred throng we at his feet may fall. So you see how it unfolds. It's like this group, this group, this group, this group. Oh, let us join that group and praise the Lord. I could go through uh, crown him with many crowns in the same way. But all of this is an an extraordinarily unnecessary long introduction to a song that I do want to introduce to you. "America the Beautiful." So, uh, this is not a hymn that we sing at church, and I'm glad because when we gather together, it's not to celebrate the United States of America; it's to celebrate the Kingdom of God. But serves as a good illustration for what I want to lead into. "America the Beautiful." If you don't know anything but the first verse, you probably don't know how the song unfolds. But the way the song unfolds is the songwriter says, America is a beautiful place, and here are some of the things that make it a beautiful place. And and the songwriter starts off with describing the physical beauty of America. Oh, beautiful, for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountain majesty above thy fruited plain. And then the songwriter goes on and cites other reasons why America is beautiful. This is one of the stanzas. Oh, beautiful for heroes proved in liberating strife, who more than self their country loved, and freedom more than life. That's one of the things that makes America beautiful, is that there have been strong patriotic men who have gone off to fight foes that threatened their homes, and threatened their freedom. And uh, that's one of the things that makes America beautiful. That, that kind of army, that kind of navy, and so on, that, that kind of armed force that f- is fighting for home and is fighting for freedom is different than a mercenary. A mercenary is someone who fights only for pay. It was very common in the ancient world that there were some people who were just professional soldiers and that uh, they may have lived in Greece, but they may have uh, hired themselves out to fight for a a neighboring country. And there's a very famous story of how that, uh, well, I won't get into it. So there's very famous stories about mercenaries being hired and... uh, so we, we feel that there are certain motivations that ennoble and make more admirable the actions that someone does. And on the other hand, we know and feel that there are motivations that sully or make less valuable what someone does. And one of those things is are you doing it for money? Are you doing this just so people will see you? Are you doing this just so people will like you? Well, let's get started on this text, and I'll continue to develop that, uh, that introduction as we go. <clears throat> so in John chapter 5, in verse 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, Jesus is continuing his assertion that God the Father has entrusted him with works that verify that he, Jesus, is God's Son and is equal with God. But one thing that he says here that ought to carry weight with us is that Jesus is doing what he is doing not for the sake of personal gain. That would be mercenary in its nature. Jesus is saying, I'm doing what God wants me to do because I'm not seeking my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is kind of a delicate matter, Uh, not, not delicate in that it's immodest or something like that, but just it requires some nuance. So there is, a, there is a certain way and a certain extent to which it is appropriate to seek the approval of good men. That is just a fundamental principle that God has built into essential human nature. We want to have the approval of others. And we parents do well to take advantage of that and use it for the cultivation of character in our children. This past week uh, when we were visiting with uh, uh, our, our children in North Carolina, uh, we took a hike one day and I had my little, almost two-year-old granddaughter on my shoulders and we were walking around a lake and she wanted to throw things in the lake. And so we were gathering acorns and hickory nuts and so on so that she, I would walk to the edge of the lake and she could throw them in. And when she successfully got one in the water... Then she would clap her hands. Now, in clapping her hands, I don't think that that was entirely self-congratulation and rejoicing. I think that she had also learned when I do something, other people clap their hands, and so we all, we all cooperated with that. And uh, when she successfully threw something in the water, then we all clapped our hands. And um, and I I don't think that that is a I don't think that, that is necessarily. A bad thing. I think it's a good thing that God has built into children that they want the approval of their parents, and it's not just when they're being carried around on their shoulders. Throughout life, we want to have the the approval and blessing of our parents. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to want the approval of good men. It's one of the things that uh, it's one of the things that ought to make church discipline so painful, is that. A congregation of God's people says, we are no longer approving of you. In fact, we're expressing our disapproval of you. And that, that should hurt. A real Christian would say, oh, I want the people of God to approve me. I want, the, I want to have fellowship with the people of God. Now, right here is a good time for us just to represent this, for me to represent this as a, a departure of two, two roads. On one road is I am seeking God's approval and the approval of people who are with God and the other road is I am seeking the approval of people who are not with God. And once you start going down the road of I am seeking the approval of people who are not with God you're in a very dangerous position. I want people who do not know God to admire me. Many of us uh, made professions of faith when we were young children, we saw at a young age we saw this would please my parents. Uh, I think it is true I want to I want to live my life this way and uh, and so many of us made professions of faith and were baptized when we were six, seven, eight years old and Then, as we got older, usually about twelve or thirteen. We were confronted with new temptations. And we were confronted with the possibility of new friendships in new situations. And uh, those situations appealed to us, but we knew that in order to fit in with that group and to get the approval of that group, we could not keep on with our simple Christian ways. Now, a few of you... I wasn't one of them, but a few of you stood strong. A few of you really were converted when you were seven or eight years old, but many of us were not. I've interviewed many of you who were like me, that once that little seed of truth began to be washed away by the flood of the desire for worldly approval, then soon I and some of you others began uh, not acting like a Christian at all. Perhaps we continued to maintain some semblance of a profession of Christianity when we were around our parents or around church people, but at school or with those people whose approval we longed to have, we were no longer behaving like Christians. That That little tiny bit of truth became so diluted by the flood of the desire for worldly approval, that it was lost. Now, I believe in the eternal security of the believer. And so, if you were a true believer, you'll always be a true believer. But I think that often we're mistaken. And that these temptations that come to us that cause us to seek the approval of the world more than the approval of God and His people illustrate and demonstrate, I meant to say, demonstrate that we were not truly converted when we... Professed to be as a young child, and so in my case, and with the case of many of you that we have interviewed, later on the Lord extended His grace, and we repented of sin and trusted in Him, and then there came about a permanent change. But one of the most diluting, one of the most, one of the most overwhelming temptations that occurs to us is the desire to be approved by people who are not following God. In thinking about this, I began to think about uh, the incredible ability that some fish and animals have to smell, of all things. So, you know, salmon are born in fresh water, maybe hundreds of miles inland from the sea. And then as as little, as little fingerling salmon, they smell that environment and it's impressed upon their minds. And then they swim downstream into a creek and the creek empties into a smaller river and the smaller river enters into a larger river and finally the larger river goes into the sea. And these salmon who were conceived, who were spawned hundreds of miles inland then spend almost the rest of their life swimming in saltwater oceans. But then one day, these salmon are struck with the desire to reproduce. And as they're swimming along, there is a molecule of water, if I can put it that way. There's a little tiny, tiny bit of water that comes to their nostrils, and they say, I want to go that direction. Unbelievably, it can be one part per 80 billion. So there are 80 billion molecules of water floating around in the ocean. And then here's this one that that salmon smells that and says, I want to go there. And then it follows in the right direction, and then it smells another one or two or three. And then pretty soon... To make a long story very short, it goes back to the very place where it was spawned. But I can't do that. I can't, I cannot smell a fingerprint that is one week old. A bloodhound can. I cannot smell something that is buried 40 feet underground. Some dogs can. You know, if you, if you put, 80 billion parts towards the most pungent smell in my life, I will stop smelling whatever that pungent smell is. It's just overwhelmed by the vast flood of other information. And I think that this is one of the most devastating instruments that the, the Satan, that uh, the devil I meant to say, that Satan employs in our lives. That he sees that little, that little nugget of truth That we're holding on to, and he just says, Well, I can take care of that. And he sends floods and floods of distractions. And one of the most potent of those flooding, inundating distractions is the desire to have the approval of other people. I would be curious to know is there anybody who abandoned the faith? For any other reason. Than to have the approval. Of other people in some way. Oh I know it eventually leads to drug addiction. And alcohol addiction. And sex addiction. And all kinds of other things. But I think it almost always starts. With this desire. I want somebody to like me. I want somebody to approve of me. I want this group of friends to like me. And so I'm going to compromise. My Christian beliefs. And then a flood Of distraction comes in. And I don't think that there has ever been an age. In which the possibility of distraction. Has been stronger. Or more omnipresent than it is now. It is possible for you to have. Some kind of information or some kind of music. Pumped into your head 24 hours a day and then you have a 5 minute devotional in the morning and then you listen to people who are not wanting to please god all day long whether it's podcasts whether it's movies that you're watching music that you're listening to and then maybe 3 minutes before you go to bed you kneel down and say a little prayer and so you've spent about you've spent about 8 to 10 minutes a day in god's presence and then all the rest of the time is just whooshed over by this great damn break of information and entertainment that comes on you, you're not going to flourish. You've got, you've, got to, you've got to exercise some self-control and say, I'm not always going to listen to music when I'm in the car. I'm not always going to turn on the TV when I walk in the door. I'm not always going to check my cell phone first thing in the morning that little nugget of truth is going to be swept away. You've got to get control of that. Here, and and still today, it was the, the desire for the approval from other people. And that still is very, very powerful. I'm going to skip ahead in my text and then go back, but I want to show you this. Look at verse 41 in John 5:41. Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people. So Jesus is saying, this is not what motivates me. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Now listen to this. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus says this is virtually an impossibility. You are spending your life trying to get the approval of other people. And you cannot possibly choose the course of action that is going to make you unpopular with these people as long as that your main goal in life is to please them. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? So the desire to be To be approved of by God and by God's people is a good thing. The desire to be approved of and known by people who are not seeking to glorify God will almost inevitably lead you to destruction and lead you away from considering the claims of Jesus Christ. You know that if you become a Christian, it's going to mean that you're going to lose friends. And you just won't do it. You know that if you become a really earnest, sincere Christian, it may mean that you're going to have to end that relationship. And you just won't do it. You love approval from men more than you love approval from God. But Jesus was not that way. He said, I am, I am not seeking my own glory. I am seeking the glory of him who sent me. This is such a dangerous thing that Jesus says, don't even think over much about your own acts of righteousness. So that when you pray, make sure that you're not praying to be a show-off. If you do, then people will admire you and that's all the reward you'll get. But pray in secret. When you give, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't dwell on it. Don't think about what a generous person you are so that you start to pat yourself on the back. Don't even let yourself dwell on it. Much less let other people know about it so that they'll brag on you that idea that I want to be approved of by other people is going to lead me in a wrong direction. Here's what I think you should do. You become the kind of person who notices what other people do and commend them for it. But try to live in such a way that if no one ever notices what you do, you still have the reward that you are after. And that's the reward of being seen by God. If other people notice and express their appreciation, that's fine. That's gratifying. But just don't let that that be the reason why you do the things that you do. Jesus once asked his disciples a question that probably made them snicker. He said, if if one of you has a slave and uh, he comes in from work... Will the master say to the slave, oh, you've been working so hard. Sit down here. Let me uh, feed you. They probably laughed right there. No, no no one treats their slaves that way. He said what they all knew. Instead, won't he say to the slave, fix my dinner, serve me, and then after that you may eat. And then Jesus said, So, when you have done everything that was required of you, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was expected of us. Now, I'll tell you, that's a way to be happy in life. If you want to be petted and praised, you will often be disappointed. But if your desire is to be a servant who serves for God alone, you will never be disappointed. Everybody wants to be served. So Jesus sets a high standard, an important standard for us. "Don't, Don't do what you're doing to show off. That's your problem, he could say to these antagonists of his. How can you believe? The evidence is so plain in front of you. The evidence that has come from John the Baptist. Now, I'm not going to allow John the Baptist to be one of my witnesses. I'm not going to subpoena him to this court. But John the Baptist was a pretty significant witness. Let's see what he says about John the Baptist. In uh, verse, verse 31, Jesus says, If I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, Jesus is speaking here in a legal sense. Not in a literal sense. Of course, what Jesus says about himself is true. But he's saying, in a court of law, testimony about myself would not be admitted. That's just what he means here when he says, if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. I think anticipating that he means John the Baptist, he says in the next verses, No, I don't mean John the Baptist, but he was a pretty good witness. Verse 33, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man. So You see there Jesus is, is saying this is, not, this is not the witness that I'm calling forward. But I say these things so that you may be saved. That's a powerful sentence right there. Here are these people who want to kill him. And Jesus is dropping a parenthetical and aside into his conversation with them so that they might be saved. He's not, he's not saying, boy, you suckers, I'm really going to get you. No, he's saying, I want you to be saved. And so I'm mentioning this. Take this into consideration. John was a, a great witness. Verse 35, he was a burning and shining lamp. Very important, you young preachers, that you have both heat and Light. John had them both. He was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Oh, how much is contained in that indictment against them. You were willing to rejoice. You saw the beauty and the joy of it for a little while. Just for a little while. And then when you saw that John was requiring things of you that uh, would make you unpopular or that you didn't want to do. You turned away from him. But you rejoiced for a little while. But that's not the witness that I'm talking about. Verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. And then it's going to be the Father. But here are three ways that the Father attests to who Jesus is. The first one is, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So this is why I read Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 as one of our scripture readings. There it says that God himself attested to the Godship of Jesus Christ by signs, wonders, various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The, The great miracles that Jesus was able to perform led Nicodemus who at the time was a skeptic to say we know that you are a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing unless God were with him. And so let the truthfulness of the miracles that Jesus did be a witness for you and a witness for me that Jesus is indeed equal with the father. So, God the Father testifies by enabling Jesus to do great works. And then notice verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself, that is, without mediation. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent." Now, I promise you, if you try to figure that out, you're not going to get it. I think it's mistranslated. So I think that instead of statements, that they ought to be questions. You say, well, which is it in the Greek? In the Greek, they don't, in, in the original Greek, they don't have punctuation. So there's not periods, there's not question marks, there's not commas and semicolons and so on. And so you just have to figure out from the context whether it's a statement or whether it is a question. I didn't come, with this, come up with this on my own. I'm not a sufficient Greek scholar to do this. But uh, I read this in my favorite commentator, John Brown. <clears throat> and uh, so, but this is, this is the gist of it. That what Jesus is saying here is he is making reference to his baptism. And at the baptism... God the Father speaks from heaven. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So they heard his voice. They also apparently were able to see heaven opened and the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove. And so this was the form by which God represented his attestation of uh, of Jesus and uh, his, his character and his identity and his mission. And so... With that in mind, let's read, read, let's read this statement as questions. <clears throat> Verse 37. The Father himself and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Haven't you heard his voice? Haven't you seen his form? Don't you presume to have his word abiding in you? Yet you do not believe the one he has sent. So I think that what Jesus is saying here is you there there's the evidence of the miracles but then there's also the evidence that God himself gave when he spoke from heaven. You've heard his voice. You have of course God does not have a body and so you can't you can't see God with your physical eyes but sometimes he represents himself and he did when Jesus was baptized as a dove, you've seen his form, you've seen these things. You guys were there. And You're very proud about having the Word of God. You think that it is inside of you, and to a degree it is. But you have missed the meaning of the Scriptures. Your eyes are blind to these, these ways that God has revealed Himself. And that's obvious because you don't believe the one that He has sent. So you've had all these privileges, and yet you do not believe the one He has sent. He goes on, picking up on what he said about their having the word abiding in him. He says in verse 39, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Now it's possible that if you grew up, like I did, reading and hearing the King James Version, that you remember this being phrased a different way. You remember it being said, Search the scriptures. For in them you have eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me. So here, the, the, the question is, is this a statement of fact, what grammarians call an indicative? Or is this a command, what grammarians call an imperative? It's translated in the ESV as an indicative. You search the scriptures. You do this. He's just saying, this is what you do. The King James Version translators thought that it ought to be translated as an imperative. Search the scriptures. If you do, you'll find out that I'm taught there. So I agree that it is a... I agree with the translation that the ESV is taking. Again, you might say, well, doesn't the Bible... Doesn't the Greek manuscripts distinguish one from the other? The answer is no. So an indicative... In, in the Greek is the same as an imperative, and you just have to find out from context. I think the context here indicates that Jesus is using an indicative, that he's making a statement. He is, he's bringing an indictment against them for their unbelief. And he's saying to them, you have the Word of God dwelling in you, but obviously you haven't understood it because you don't believe in the one he has sent. You search the Scriptures. You pride yourselves on being experts in the Bible. And in the Bible, it talks about me. When he talks about the Scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. He says, these are the Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. If you get the impression that they're unbelievers, not because of a lack of evidence, but because of a lack of motivation, you are correct. And that is almost Always, the reason why people are not Christians, it is rarely a lack of evidence. It's almost always a lack of motivation. Jesus says the Scriptures testify about me, so God testifies about me through the works that He's given me to do. God Himself spoke with His voice. He descended in a dove. You have His Word dwelling in you, but you you're, you're missing the main point of the Word. You don't believe in the one he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think, oh, if I just become a real Bible scholar, then I'm going to be pleasing to God. And Jesus says, you've missed it. I want you to become Bible scholars, Bullet Lake Baptist Church, but don't miss the message. I want you to be Bible readers. Elizabeth, can you bring up that quotation from from J.C. Ryle? Let this sink deep into your heart. Simple, regular reading of our Bibles is the grand secret of establishment in the faith. Ignorance of the scriptures is the root of all evil. Simple, regular reading of our Bibles is the grand secret of establishment in the faith. How are you doing with that? Simple, regular reading of the Scriptures. You know, if if I counsel with someone who is experiencing distress in their spiritual life or just in their life in general, and that person is a professing Christian, one of the first things that I'm going to ask is, what does your devotional life look like? And if it's, if it's negligent, oh, you know, I, I pray every once in a while. I read the Bible sometimes and... Right there's probably your problem. It's simple. Regular reading of our Bibles is the grand secret of establishment in the faith. Ignorance of the scriptures is the root of all evil. Now let that sink deep into your hearts. Obviously these people we can go back to the text now. Obviously these people were searching the scriptures because they thought this is the way that this is the way that we get saved is by being experts in the Bible, but no, being an expert in the Bible is supposed to lead you to Christ and to receive Christ. I have already read uh, verses 41 through 44, emphasizing that the desire to please other people can uh, inundate and obliterate the desire to please God. He continues with, and he concludes this text, by uh, pointing, pointing out that the Scriptures testify about him. Verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. In studying this passage of Scripture, I learned uh, for the first time that the Roman Catholic idea of getting the saints to pray for you was actually borrowed from the Jews who wanted to get Moses to pray for them. And so here, Jesus says, your hopes are set on Moses. Moses is going to accuse you. Verse 46, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Here, Jesus, Jesus says, confidence in the trustworthiness of the Scripture is a a foundation on which real faith is built. But you've got to understand that the Scriptures are primarily about Jesus and are meant to lead us to have confidence that Jesus is who He said He was, the Son of God. Consequently, what Jesus says is truth without error. Also, consequently, what Jesus did on behalf of sinners to reconcile them to God is effective and will not fail. And that promise of being reconciled to the Father through this Jesus is extended today to all who will repent of sin and receive Christ as their Lord and Savior these are many good reasons for us to, to have confidence that Jesus is who he said he was and is and that he accomplished what he said he would do and has done. Jim, Bob, come and lead us in a